Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. GC, you can tell we're reaching the end of the term because the court has started issuing opinions twice a week. Coffee shares rise on expectations of court-watching podcasters getting very little sleep. (laughs) I'm sympathetic. Uh, Maybe we'll have to try some of that Judge Alito's bold justice blend coffee that his clerks had created for him. (laughs) Uh, At any rate, I hope you're adequately caffeinated uh, because we're off to the races. I am. Great. Well, we'll start with the opinions. Uh, first up is United States v. Palomar Santiago. This is a unanimous opinion by Justice Sotomayor, which stands for the proposition that a particular statute means exactly and only what it says. Uh, GC, I know this is remarkable, uh, especially coming from Justice Sotomayor. <laughs> uh, but here's the situation. If you're a non-citizen and you break certain laws, you can be deported. And if you then try to re the country, uh, you can be charged with the crime of unlawful entry. Now, if you want to defend against that charge by saying that the underlying deportation order was invalid, you can do that. But according to the statute at issue in this case, you must show three things. One, that you exhausted all of your administrative remedies. Two, that you were deprived of judicial review of the deportation order. And three, that the deportation order was unfair. In this case, Palomar Santiago had been deported after a conviction for driving under the influence, a DUI. He then re-entered the country, and he was arrested for unlawful re-entry. But between his deportation and his subsequent conviction, the Supreme Court held that a DUI is not a, quote, removable offense. So in response to his unlawful re-entry charge, Palomar Santiago sought to challenge the validity of his deportation order. The problem for him was that he could not satisfy the first two requirements of the statute. He had not exhausted his administrative remedies, and he wasn't deprived of judicial review. Instead, he argued that the court should read an exception into the statute for cases where the underlying offense is later held to be not removable. No such exception exists in the text but the Ninth Circuit found one anyway. Unsurprisingly, the Ninth Circuit's opinion was written by the late Judge Stephen Reinhardt, who was infamous for ignoring the law in favor of his own policy preferences because, in his words, quote, they, the Supreme Court, can't catch them all. The Supreme Court unanimously reversed because, as Justice Sotomayor wrote, the Ninth Circuit's interpretation is incompatible with the text. Interesting fun fact about this. I think this marks Judge Stephen Reinhardt's third unanimous reversal issued by the Supreme Court posthumously. (laughs) Well, you know. That is after his death, obviously. Well, maybe the Supreme Court can't catch them all, but they certainly seem to be catching a few, (laughs) if that's the case. 
Next up, we have Guam versus United States. This was another unanimous opinion, this time written by Justice Thomas, where the court held that Guam could sue the United States under the Clean Water Act for the cost of cleaning up a waste dump, even though it had settled a similar claim with the government under the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, which is more commonly known as CERCLA. The court held that CERCLA settlements limit liability only as to CERCLA claims, but not as to Clean Water Act claims. Last up, we had another unanimous opinion in San Antonio versus Hotels.com, this one written by Justice Alito. There, the court held that district courts have no discretion to reduce the costs that an appellate court allocates to a party that wins an appeal. Next up, Zach's interview with Judge Ginsburg. We're pleased to be joined today by the Honorable Douglas Ginsburg, who currently serves as a senior judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. He was appointed to the court in 1986 by President Reagan and assumed senior status in 2011. From July 2001 to February 2008, he served as that court's chief judge. Prior to joining the D.C. Circuit, Judge Ginsburg worked as a professor at Harvard Law School and served in multiple government positions during the Reagan administration, including as Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Office of Management and Budget, and as the Assistant Attorney General for the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. He attended Cornell University for undergraduate and the University of Chicago for law school. After law school, he clerked for Judge Carl McGowan on the D.C. Circuit and Justice Thurgood Marshall on the U.S. Supreme Court. Judge Ginsburg, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And Judge, we'll start off with just a, a, a basic background question. What made you want to be a lawyer? <laughs> uh, my experience as a client is the answer. <laughs> and what was that experience like? I was in business for three and a half years before going back to finish college and go on to law school. And uh, my mo motivation in doing those was that uh, in my business experience, uh, I thought that the, uh, the lawyers dealt with um, very interesting problems mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, got paid win or lose. That's not the way it works <laughs> in business. So I, <laughs> I was quite seriously interested in it uh, as an intellectual matter. So I, I made the effort and went back for five years to get uh, finish college and get a law degree. Excellent. And now you attended the University of Chicago for law school. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Uh, if there were any particular classes or professors you enjoyed taking, uh, anything along those lines? I was there from 1970 to 1973. And it was probably the most, certainly equal to the most exciting time to be in in, in legal ac academy, um, probably since the 1930s with the realists. Um, it was the time when economic analysis of law was moving from uh, its traditional toeholds mm -hmm. in uh, antitrust, utility regulation, um, and tax into uh, the more general field, including all the common law subjects. So sure. to give you one way of bracketing this experience is to say, on the first day 
of the first year of law school with Dick Posner teaching torts. The first thing he said was, torts is not my field. <laughs> he was trying to teach around the curriculum to test out his ideas about, about the economic logic, or maybe I shouldn't say logic, instinct at work somewhat silently in the common law. Mm. And in 1973, when we were graduated, it was also the time when he published the first edition of his book, Economic Analysis of Law, which is now in its eighth or ninth edition. Mm. So there was a great ferment within the faculty. It was one in which there were skeptics, there were opponents, and there were proponents of rethinking everything. It could not have been more exciting for the students. You know, the University of Chicago um, has for a long time been a place in which um, it, it focuses on graduate education mm -hmm. and um, a few undergraduates are allowed to watch. <laughs> and in the law school, which is basically an undergraduate curriculum, it's not a research um, uh, advanced degree, uh, the same thing applies. The faculty is at work and the f students are allowed to watch. And it was great. Mm. <laughs> two mm. seminars with Ronald Coase, two or not three courses with Dick Posner, Ed Kitch. Um, uh, oh, gosh, I've forgotten the terrific fellow who did statistics. Um, it was extremely exciting. Excellent. And now I understand was uh, another well-known judge, uh, Frank Easterbrook. Was he one of your classmates at the University of Chicago? Frank and I were classmates. We sat opposite each other at a partner's desk in the law review office. I was the articles editor. He was the uh, editor for student <laughs> notes and comments. Um, and so we go back a long way and we've never been out of touch. Frank when we were graduated, knew more law than anybody I have known since. Mm. He read the federal advance sheets, Fed Second then, every week. Now, of course, he would skip things that were repetitive. Sure. But by the time we were, we were out of law school, he had an extraordinary command of federal case law. Now, after law school, I understand you came to D.C. and you clerked for Judge Carl McGowan on the D.C. Circuit. Yes. Uh, which is the court you now sit on. <laughs> yes, I, and I have the pleasure of sitting with Judge McGowan when I first came on the court and before he retired. What was that experience like sitting with Judge McGowan after you had uh, clerked for him? Well, it was, um, it was not at all awkward because Judge McGowan was such a gracious man, such a great gentleman. Um, <laughs> I am told that... Um, when I was confirmed at the meeting of, uh, by the Senate, the, the next meeting of the uh, judges, of the administrative meeting of the court, um, Judge McGowan said, I assume he'll be assigned to my chambers as usual. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any special uh, memories from your time clerking with Judge McGowan, or did Judge McGowan have any traditions with his uh, law clerks? Well, in answer to the first question, we had the, um, the Watergate tapes case. Mm. Watergate uh, agricultural co-op case coming out of that and a couple of others as well, which consumed a substantial portion of, of, a, of my time as a clerk that year, 73 to 74. Um, so that was an extraordinary experience. 
Um, also, uh, the court at that time was one of nine judges, and there were three uh, conventionally identified uh, groupings, let's say, of three each, of more liberal, more conservative, and mm -hmm. in the center. And um, Judge McGowan, as one of those centrists, um, I think was in a position where he he commanded more respect from the rest of the court than, than I would say, almost anyone, probably anyone. Judge mm. Leventhal was a great intellect, uh, but he was not a winning personality. Mm. Um, so it was so it was, uh, it was a great introduction, really, to the way in which a court functions with people of different perspectives, different sure. backgrounds, um, work to, uh, to come together. It was fractious, but not, not that's not wrong. It was factional, but not fractious. Sure, sure. Uh, what about traditions? Did uh, Judge McGowan have any traditions with his clerks? He did. He had an annual dinner for his former clerks, with his former clerks. And um, uh, I made it to most of those dinners. Um, and one particularly interesting event, I thought, was that um, the background here is that Judge McGowan had been counsel to Governor Stevenson in Illinois, and had run both the governor's successful um, campaigns, mm. uh, as well as the governor's unsuccessful campaign for the presidency. Um, and he was known not as counsel to the governor, but as the conscience of the governor. <laughs> um, the man who was the communications uh, head of that operation, uh, whose name I'm sorry to say escapes me just now, was a re later a reporter for the tri or a journalist, uh, perhaps columnist for the Tribune, Chicago Tribune. In any event, he wrote a uh, he wrote a long, I think two volumes, as I recall, biography of Governor Stevenson, which I read. And when I came to the next dinner after that book had been published and I'd read it, um, when Judge McGowan gave his report on the annual his annual report on the court and then uh, opened the floor to questions. I asked him if he had read the book. Oh, the man's name is John Bartlow Martin. Just came out. Mm. And he said, no, Douglas, I want to remember it just the way I remember it. <laughs> that, that's understandable. Now, after you clerked for Judge McGowan, you went on and clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme yes. Court. And I've seen a panel uh, presentation, I believe you were on it, uh, Justice Kagan was on it, and several of his other former clerks, and they mentioned that after lunch each day, he would return to chambers and chat with his clerks and share stories. Uh, so did any particular stories that Justice uh, Marshall shared, did, did any particular stories stand out to you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And some of them have been recounted in, um, in either Juan Williams' biography of the justice, or in the stage play, Thurgood, um, with uh, typically uh, uh, Lawrence, um, oh my gosh, great actor. Lawrence I, Fishburne? I, yes, Lawrence Fishburne. It's a one-man mm. show. Um, and of course, it's true. The judge come, would come back and spend typically about 45 minutes just sitting in uh, the... Uh, easy chair there and 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 tell us telling stories 
And some of them were hair-raising, I must say, an insight into um, the very dark side of another era. Mm. And um, as I had occasion to note a couple of years ago at the when someone else gave the Thurgood Marshall lecture at the Second Circuit, it occurred to me only in retrospect that um, Justice Marshall was never the hero of those stories. Mm. Typically, mm. there was no hero. Mm. They were just insights crossing generational lines into uh, another world. Sure. Sure. So if you want an example, a little hair-raising in itself, um, he had a trial in Florida, as I recall, uh, black-on-white rape allegation. And um, when the jury retired to deliberate, the prosecuting attorney walked over to, uh, to then Mr. Marshall and said... Um, See the uh, bailiff over there lighting a cigar? Yes, what of it? Well, I'll bet you a dollar, whatever, that um, the jury comes in within 10 minutes of the time he puts out that cigar. Marshall said, what's, what's the cigar got to do with the jury? And the uh, prosecuting attorney said, uh, well, the jurors are going to want to have time for a cigar, too. Uh. Uh. There was a case in Texas, um, I think it was about an hour's drive out of, I think it was Dallas, and there was no place in that town where he could safely stay. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, he would stay with a family connected to the NAACP. Um, hotels were off limits, except for black-only mm -hmm. hotels that were not very nice. Uh, so he was driven um, from his hotel to the courthouse in this other county. And uh, somewhere along the way, uh, county police car started to tail them all the way to the courthouse. Indeed, pulled up right behind them at the courthouse steps. And um, Justice Marshall didn't fail to notice that, of course. Sure. And the second day, uh, say, by the, say, at the end of the day, the same thing happened. This police car tailed them out to some place in the middle of the middle of the uh, tri trip, and then dropped off. And the same thing happened the second day. And when they arrived at the courthouse on the second day, Marshall went back to the car behind him and said to the deputy, uh, "What's going on here? You've been tailing us from somewhere on the highway." Here and then back, what's up? What's up? And the uh, deputy said, um, Sheriff says you're not to be killed in this county. Oh, my goodness. Those, those certainly are harrowing stories. Uh, I can only imagine what, uh, what Justice Marshall saw in his very, very long career. And, you know, an important thing to realize, and by the way, the Juan Williams biography is excellent. The only mistake in it is the subtitle, which probably the publisher put on. It's just called Thurgood Marshall, American Radical. And he was anything but uh, a radical. In a, I mean, in the sense that he had disdain for 
all of the different avenues that he saw uh, African Americans take over the decades, uh, back to Africa, uh, uh, separatism, uh, even even marching in the streets, even Dr. King, he thought if you he believed in American institutions, and if you want to change, you went to court to try to enforce the Constitution. But what people don't seem to realize, most people they haven't read the read more, is that um, most of his career was uh, well first practicing in Baltimore in small time matters, but then uh, even when he went to the NAACP. He was primarily defending these cases in the South time after time after time at the risk of his life. The 20-year campaign that led to the decision in Brown versus Board of Education was a, uh, a highly well-planned, strategically uh, laid-out campaign by uh, Marshall, by Walter White, by Spotswood Robinson and by um, uh, Bill Hasty, William Hasty. Mm -hmm. um, but that was not <laughs> that was not where the time went uh, in between those cases. I mean, the, the most of right. it was spent in these, or much of it at least, in these uh, very difficult defenses. And there's a, I think it was Pulitzer Prize, maybe National Book Award winning. Uh, effort by a journalist a few years ago called The Boys in the Grove, which is a, a terrific detailed account mm. of that conspiracy case, also in, in Florida. Uh, and he didn't get involved in that until the appeal, but one of the four, I think it was, uh, had died by then in prison. Mm. It was a, uh, it's a real insight to that book into something not that long ago. I mean, you know, sure. 50, sure. 50, 60 years. Now, Justice Kagan has famously mentioned that Justice Marshall would have nicknames for some of his law clerks. Uh, she said that he would call her shorty and would call her knucklehead if he disagreed with her. Uh, did uh, Justice Marshall have any uh, nicknames for you, Judge Ginsburg? Uh, I think he called, uh, well, I know he called me and my co-clerk, uh, both of my co-clerks, knucklehead. That was his <laughs> default name for the clerk. Uh, Shorty was probably, uh, uh, you know, a complimentary break from Knucklehead. Uh, <laughs> um, so that was that was pretty sta standard issue. Get used to that. Sure, sure. <laughs> now, after you clerked for Justice Marshall, you joined the faculty at Harvard Law School, uh, where your scholarship focused on antitrust law. Uh, when did you first develop an interest in antitrust? It was at the University of Chicago Law School. Um, where uh, it was quite interesting. The, the uh, person who taught antitrust then um, really did not have, or at least did not betray, uh, much familiarity with economics. There was one instance in which he was trying to illustrate something with a graph, and after several attempts uh, failed, Frank Easterbrook just got up and went to the board and did it for him. <laughs> uh, but previously, uh, just as a way of sidelight, previously that course had been taught four days a week, in the days when classes met every day, mm -hmm. uh, four days a week by a law professor and the fifth day by an economist, usually Aaron Director, who would explain why everything they'd heard during the first four days made no sense whatever, <laughs> which was a fair a portrayal of 
of an antitrust jurisprudence at the time. And that was in sure. the 50s. Um, so flat, flash forward to the 70s where we are, and um, it was quite apparent that this was a, uh, a fascinating field for the direct application of economics, and there was a lot of work to be done because there was still so much um, nonsense in the case law, almost all of which, virtually all of which has been since repudiated by the Supreme Court, mm. yet overturning expressly in some cases, most cases expressly in other cases, uh, in, uh, implicitly, uh, uh, probably seven, eight, ten cases, all of which were extant then. So uh, that seemed like a, uh, a really fertile field for uh, engagement, let's say. Mm. Sure. Uh, now, do you have any particular uh, memories or special memories from your time as a, a professor at Harvard? <laughs> well, sure. Uh, I was there eight years. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and then I'm leave for two years. So, yeah, at that time, the Harvard faculty, law faculty, was um, extremely fractious and uh, divisive and uh, or divided, I should say. And um, the critical legal studies clique, of which there were a half a dozen, six out of 65 faculty members, uh, just made trouble on every... No, no matter was too small for them to turn it into an embarrassment for the law school <laughs> uh, and a debate over their proto-Marxist views. Um, and so uh, that was just so tiresome indeed. When I left... When I took my leave, it was because having gotten tenure, I just needed to get away from the faculty politics. Mm. It was extensively covered in the New York Times, sure. where, uh, and some degree the New Yorker, which had an enormously uh, effective uh, uh, role in quashing alumni donations. Mm. Uh, <laughs> until 1985, when Bob Clark became dean, and he uh, he realized this and. Uh, with his reforms, unleashed a uh, flood of desire to give to, to give money. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. Anyway, uh, so there was that, which was an unpleasant aspect of it. There was a, an amusing uh, just incident, I guess. Um, um, the incoming chairman of the Federal Trade Commission during the Carter administration. I started teaching there in 1975, so this would have been in 77. Um, came to see Phil Arita to talk about things he was going to do as chairman of the FTC. And um, Phil, of course, was already the author of the such prominent treatise along with Don Turner. And um, uh, he didn't know, the, the chairman didn't know me at all. So Phil said, well, you ought to talk to my, my young colleague. And he took, me, he took um, the man down to meet me. And we spent a little time in my office chatting. And mm. um, he said, is there any, uh, any you know, particular advice you want to share with me? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> just stay away from children's television advertising. It is a complete morass and it will swallow you. <laughs> well, he made that one of his high priorities. And it swallowed him. <laughs> he should have listened to your advice then. 
your next stop after your teaching at Harvard, you served as the administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Office of Management and Budget during the Reagan administration. Uh, how did how did that come about? How did how were you able to step into that position? Nobody knows the, that office by name, so it's I was just the regulatory czar. Okay, according to the press, <laughs> um, not a very appealing title, but there it is. It, um, <laughs> what happened was this: after teaching at Harvard, I took my leave to be to serve as um, the deputy for regulation in the antitrust division. Mm-hmm. Bill Baxter from Stanford Law School, professor there, was head of the division. So I was his deputy, one of them. And um, I got that position because um, when I was interested in leaving, taking a leave from Harvard, I went to the wedding of, of, a, of a very dear classmate, and another classmate who was there was serving in that position. Mm. And as we walked from the church to the reception in Midtown Manhattan, he said, uh, I was griping about the law school and wanting to take a leave. And he said, well, would you be interested in my job because I'm about to leave? Oh, wow. <laughs> so I said, in a trice, I would, he said, would you take it? I said, in a trice. A few weeks later, Baxter called me and offered me the job. And so uh, right after Labor Day of uh, 1970, um, 1975, is that right? No, seven, uh, let me think about this. Anyway, right in there, 74, I guess. Um, I, I'm way off, I'm way off, pardon me, it was 83. Mm. Um, I went over to the antitrust division as, the de- as a deputy. And a year later, almost to the day, yet another classmate, who was the regulatory czar, called me and asked me if I would take his job because he was about to leave. Mm. Now, these two fellows had been there two years and three years respectively, so they were not bailing out early. Sure. Um, I took that and worked for Dave Stockman, who ran OMB. OMB is part of the exact, well, OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, is part of OMB, Office of Management and Budget, and OMB is part of the Executive Office of the President. Mm-hmm. And we are housed in the old Executive Office building. Mm. So the job comes with a certain degree of leverage that attaches to the ability to speak for the administration. Sure. Um, I did that for a year, and in the, uh, I guess a little, yeah, just about a year, and then uh, in the second term, uh, Ed Meese, who had been counselor to President Reagan, was confirmed as Attorney General. Sure. And he said to me, why don't you come back and run the division? Hmm. The so I went back division. and became Assistant Attorney General. And Excellent. just about a year after that, August of 86, um, one of the other Assistant Attorneys General, the one in charge of, uh, among other things, judicial nominations, asked me if I was interested in um, going on the D.C. Circuit. And I said, gee, I don't know. I've, I've never thought about becoming a judge. The only time I'd ever been in a court was traffic court in Chicago when I was a student. <laughs> and I lost my case. Uh, I'm sorry about, to hear that. It took about 35 <laughs> seconds. 
Uh, I was told later that if I, and I noticed others doing this, if I had carried a law school casebook, the judge would have dismissed my case. Uh, <laughs> an old tri trial lawyer's trick, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, or Chicago politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I said I wasn't, I just didn't know, and, and I asked for a week. When I came back to him, I said, I'm going overseas for 10 days on government business. Please just don't count me out. Let me think about this. So the question was, well, what am I going to do when I leave? I've been in government three years. Uh, the average time in a political appointee's life there was 22 months. Mm. It's very grueling. Uh, it's, you know, 18-hour days, six, seven days a week. Sure. So um, I said, well, what am I, what am I going to do? What's the alternative? What's the, you know, to put it in uh, more familiar terms, uh, what's the opportunity cost? <laughs> okay. yeah. And I decided I would go back to Harvard to teach. Mm. That made an easy comparison. You know, you get, I knew what teaching at Harvard was like. Sure. Um, you get to teach pretty much the subjects you want to, not always, but mostly. Um, in the court, you take on whatever the cases that come sure. to you are, uh, whatever the presiding judge assigns. Sure. Uh, you go from having 120, maybe 240 students with blue books to three students, all of whom are terrific. <laughs> sure. Uh, so um, I decided I would uh, I would accept a, a, a life sentence. <laughs> uh, well, excellent. Excellent. Now, since you've joined the D.C. Circuit and accepted your life sentence, uh, <laughs> you've had a chance to serve with uh, many distinguished jurists, including some who have gone on to the Supreme Court, uh, such as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Clarence Thomas, John Roberts, and Brett Kavanaugh, among other great judges as well. Uh, what's that experience been like to serve with so many uh, well-known, high-profile jurists? Well, of course, while they're on the circuit, it's nothing at all because there's nothing. That's, there's no SCOTUS written on their foreheads. Sure. <laughs> Um, so it's just you know dealing with uh, with uh, one's colleagues, and uh, and I've been very fortunate in my colleagues on the D.C. Circuit, I must say. So uh, I mean, once they do go on the Supreme Court, um, you know the relations are less intimate; they're less frequently in contact, but we do try to sure. maintain contact or keep friendships up. Um, they're, they're sometimes constrained by security considerations. Their life is not that pleasant. Uh, not, it's not, not all, uh, not all uh, bold cherries to be on the Supreme Court. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's really, I don't know what else to say. I mean, while they're on the court, there's just no, no difference. Uh, now, of course, um, Bob Bork did not leave, the, did not go to the Supreme Court, but then left over to try to persuade him unsuccessfully, and he, he said something very telling. This was 1987, uh, no, 1988, about February of 1988, and he said, um, I just can't go on deciding whether the secretary was reasonable. <laughs> and so we were, we were already under the yoke of Chevron. Sure, sure. And... and um, that really does transform the role of the judiciary from its legitimate role in interpreting the law 
to this uh, junior varsity role of uh, supervising the mm. uh, the logic of the uh, administrative state. And do you think that's something that's uh, uniquely experienced by your court, the D.C. Circuit, uh, giving its unique position? And, and if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could talk briefly about how your circuit, the D.C. Circuit, is a little bit unique and different uh, from the other circuit courts around the country. Well, it's quite different. Um, first of all, the administrative cases where we're reviewing an action either directly or through the district court of an administrative agency, rulemaking usually directly through the, to the Supreme Court, or to the D.C. Circuit, um, adjudications more often, or almost always through the district court. Uh, those, in, uh, th those comprise about 35, often 40% of our caseload. Mm. They are easily 75 to 80 percent of the workload. Mm. Uh, it's been at least uh, eight or ten years since I last checked this, but the circuit with the second highest percentage of administrative cases, backing out Social Security, uh, was two and a half percent. Wow. So for them, it's just the, you know, they get, they get an occasional Lanham Act case and they get an occasional administrative case. Sure. Um, the Kurt Circuit is unique in other respects. The chief judge of the Fifth Circuit told me, this is now, again, a decade ago or more, though definitely more, 60% of their cases were criminal or uh, criminal and um, uh, immigration. Mm. Well, with 600,000 residents in the district, um, there are very few federal crimes. Mm. If drugs are being... Uh, prosecuted federally, we get those. We get a few um, higher class criminals too, you know, the occasional sure. tax evader or uh, bank robber. Sure. Um, we have no immigration hearing facility in the district and therefore the no venue. There's never a venue in the district for an appeal of, the, of an immigration case. Mm. So mm. criminal cases are 7 to 10 percent of our docket depending on the era. And immigration zero. Hmm. So it's a completely different proposition. Now, for the last five years, I think it is, I've been sitting with the 11th Circuit in the southeastern hmm. United States uh, each January. And um, I get to see <laughs> uh, a copyright case, uh, two in this last January, two land deals that had gone bad. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> a bankruptcy. Uh, all manner of things that we just don't get. Mm. Mm. And it's interesting. It's, not, it's broadening. I like it. I, I wouldn't want that as my study diet. I'd like to admit, I, in fact, one of the reasons I didn't jump at the opportunity to go on the bench was that my interest has always been in regulation. Sure. An academic interest, what I teach and write about. Um, and I didn't realize the degree to which, well, I, I kind of realized, but because I clerked there, but I hadn't focused on the degree to which that would be my diet. And, sure. and that when I did, it became very appealing indeed. My wife, on the other hand, said, can't you see if we could go home and serve on the first circuit? <laughs> <laughs> so I have absolutely no interest, you know, in the kind of cases that they're going to get uh, for the most part. Sure. Um, 
So it's, it's no. a unique animal. In fact, four of my law clerks, who were, for, I've had three law clerks, while I was fully active, I had three law clerks every year except for two years, when, like my colleagues, I went up to four law clerks. Hmm. And I did that because I had a somewhat of a backlog of extrajudicial obligations, writing mostly. Hmm. And uh, one cannot ask a law clerk to do more than a little bit on, on non-judicial work. Sure. So I took on a fourth law clerk uh, for those two years. And one of those years, this would have been, I think, 2010, the four law clerks wrote an article published in Cornell Law Review, which is quite often cited article, about the unique jurisdiction of the D.C. Circuit. Oh, wow. There are many wow. other unique aspects to it. Very interesting. And of uh, course, under certain statutes, parts of the Clean Air Act and... Uh, I think it might be Federal Election Commission cases. There are special statutory provisions that provide uh, venue solely in the D.C. DC mm. District or Circuit Court. Well, speaking of your law clerks, Judge Ginsburg, do you have any special traditions uh, with your law clerks? Well, following Judge McGowan, I had um, dinners at first annually, but as the years went by and the numbers grew, um, we went to uh, every five years with a large black tie event. And then um, I think it's now actually been six, six years since we've done it. We're probably going to do it again, my wife and I, um, fairly soon. Mm. The clerks now number just under 100. I think if you include those who have been hired to begin next year or the year after, it's probably 100. Sure, sure. Now, so now that you've taken senior status uh, on the D.C. Circuit, I understand you're staying busy teaching at George Mason and working on various other outside projects, including a recent television series, A More or Less Perfect Union. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that uh, TV series? Sure. Well, just to set the background, I'm, I'm handling 50 percent of a caseload at the D.C. Circuit. Mm. And then I'm teaching uh, at George Mason um, basically full-time. And then I uh, was approached, I guess, probably five years ago now, by um, the Free to Choose Network, which began life in 1980 with the 10-part Milton and Rose Friedman series by that name, Free to Choose. Mm. And they've been supplying public television with material every year since then, last 40 years. Um, and they said, we're interested in doing something on the Constitution. We wondered if you would like to be the presenter. And I said, yes. Yeah, I think that would be a very good idea to try to get the public television audience more acquainted with the Constitution, and in particular, with the interpretive debate between uh, the so-called living Constitution and uh, original public meaning. Hmm. Uh, the role evolved... Uh, when PBS, actually WNET, which was our entree into PBS, said they also wanted me to be the narrator. And then I ended up doing a lot of, of on-scene on script writing as well. Script mm. revision, I should say. We had a writer. Um, and so it ended up with uh, three hours on public television that debuted in uh, January of 2020. Mm. And then in March, well, I should say, the, the, the long-term plan for this, not long-term, the larger plan for this was after it ran on public television, or at least after they had the exclusive, 
to put it into the hands of 170,000 teachers of history and civics who had signed up to receive materials from the company's educational affiliate. Mm. These are, both companies are nonprofits and free to choose network and um, the educational affiliate, which is called isit.org. Sure. Um, so that that is a way of reaching a million students a year, and the materials are pretty evergreen. These issues aren't going away anytime soon. Sure. Uh, then in March, when COVID shut the country down, or politicians shut the country down, I should say, <laughs> um, PBS began a service starting, I think, at 1 p.m. Eastern time every day, five days a week, broadcasting materials for all of those students who were not in school. Sure. Who were either at home or getting hybrid schooling or what have you um, to use, and they broadcast the series several times again. And then local stations uh, have been doing it uh, regularly. We've reached ninety-two percent of the public television audience. WHUT, for instance, in Washington, uses it a lot. Because for one thing, we have a lot of a lot of history of race in, in the race in, in the in the law. Sure. In the series, and we've the company has developed uh, twenty and thirty minute um, uh, components on things like one's called becoming equal, for instance, which is on mm. um, on race, and another one on the expansion of the franchise, and one on the First Amendment, using materials from the show, and because uh, we shot one hundred and fifty hours for a three hour series, we had a lot of very good uh, material that we didn't use. Sure. In the show. So anyway, um, that's where that is. And it's being used, I think, pretty widely now. In the last couple of years, six states have uh, instituted a requirement that a student pass a civics course to be graduated from high school. And these materials sure. were designed for grade 7 to 12. But I can tell you that friends of mine with ch young children younger than that have been found the kids very enthusiastic, and it's certainly something that, as in the public television audience, is meant for adults as well. It has Excellent. to be amusing and engaging. You know, no one's going to sit there for a lecture or a bunch of talking heads. Sure. So now uh, I've just finished filming 100 two-minute videos, each addressing one of the questions on the naturalization exam. Mm. Um, somebody who wants to become a citizen takes the uh, studies for this exam and then is given an oral test with 10 randomly selected questions of which they have to answer six to qualify, plus they have an English language requirement. So this is going on the web. Uh, our opening date is September 17, which is Constitution Day. Mm. We're now in a, well, not we, they are in a rush to get it done. I've done all the filming. Sure. And, um, it will be on the web, not only for anyone who wants to study for the exam, but for all teachers and, of course, any individual student. But we're making, we're, you just have to register so we can get a count. And uh, we will be able, therefore, to show exactly how many teachers are using it for how many students as a Excellent. supplement to a history course or a civics course. You know, the answers to these questions can be as little as one word or two words. Or they and they can be there can be as many as four or five correct answers. Um, sure. So it, questions like um, uh, what is Alexander Hamilton known for? Uh, you know, there are several correct answers. 
sure. for a few minutes, we can do a little biography of Alexander Hamilton and hit the high sure. points. And someone learns a lot more than, than they would just memorizing answers to questions. Sure, sure. Uh, well, finally, Judge Ginsburg, we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and it's this. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Well, I guess I should have known that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I guess I would have to finally choose between Chief Justice John Marshall and Justice John Marshall Harlan. Mm. Um, the Chief Justice was clearly in his, what is it, 28 years, 31 years, something like that on the Supreme Court. Very uh, long career. <laughs> engaged in nation building. Mm. An ardent federalist uh, who, whose interpretation of the Constitution was consistently uh, on the side of bolstering the powers of the new federal government. Um, there's a very good biography by Jean Smith uh, from, uh, I, think it's, I think it's University of Montreal, it might be, I'm not sure, it's a Canadian university. Um, in any event, uh, that, that suggests to me that the role of the court and, and the role of the Chief Justice, and of course during his time, they were almost one and the same because he wrote almost all of the opinions mm -hmm. in all of those years. I'd say 80%, 85%. Um, the role of the court and of, of the chief justice was clearly something quite different than the way we think of it now. Mm. Um, sure, we associate chief justices since then with having a special institutional um, self-consciousness that may not be shared by all the associate justices, a special sense of responsibility for the role of the court in American life. Mm. And sometimes they're criticized for that, as, as, as Chief Justice Roberts has been. Um, and I'm not sure that it's a fair criticism. It's, uh, I understand it. And I'd like to talk to, to, to Chief Justice Marshall about it. <laughs> mm. Very good. And, Chief, uh, and Justice John Marshall Harlan, I think, was probably... Um, one of the greatest, uh, most liberty-loving justices ever to serve. Mm. Sure. His dissent sure. in Plessy against Ferguson is enough to show that. Sure, absolutely. Well, Judge Ginsburg, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the uh, the show today. We really appreciate it. I've enjoyed getting a chance to to chat with you today, and I hope you'll consider joining us again in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Zach. It was a lot of fun. GC, your mention of coffee at the top of the show got me thinking about the court's own food court. Well, you know, it's really a cramped cafeteria from what I understand, uh, but I thought it'd be an interesting topic for this week's trivia. So first up, in a tradition that began during the burger court, but um, uh, funny, GC, funny, <laughs> uh, which justice is responsible for overseeing the court's cafeteria? Uh, I would have said uh, Justice Berger, naturally. Uh, but it, <laughs> actually, I think it is uh, the junior justice. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. It is the court's junior justice. And many of the justices who have served in this role describe it as essentially a form of hazing where they field good-natured complaints from their colleagues about the food. During her tenure overseeing the cafeteria, Justice Kagan received rave reviews because she added a frozen yogurt machine. I can't blame people for being excited about that. All right, next up, GC, which justice holds the record for the longest tenure overseeing the court's cafeteria? Oh, that's interesting. So you're asking me, in effect, who, which justice, in relatively recent times, I assume, was the longest-serving junior? That's exactly right. Mm, I, I don't know without spending far too much time thinking about it. Well, you know, it's not intuitive, uh, but it's actually Justice Stephen Breyer. He served as the court's junior justice from 1994 to 2006. Uh, You know, GC, it seems like Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh might have gotten off uh, a little light with their brief tenures overseeing the cafeteria, Uh, especially because Justice Breyer said the cafeteria food was, quote, a very sensitive topic (laughs) during his tenure. (laughs) All right, next up. Which two current justices clashed over their taste about the coffee that's served in the court's cafeteria? Well, I'm going to guess that Alito is one of them because we know about his his uh, his uh, obsession with coffee and the fact that his clerks have named a local blend after him. But the right. other justice, I do not know. That's a great guess, GC. Justice Alito is one, and the other is Justice Sotomayor. Justice Alito oversaw the cafeteria from 2006 to 2009, and one of his main accomplishments was finding a new coffee vendor for the cafeteria. He said he received many compliments on the delicious new coffee. But Justice Sotomayor, who took over when she joined the court in 2009, said, quote, I thought it was horrible, but... Uh, The good news is she stayed with Justice Alito's preferred coffee vendor because, as the Wall Street Journal reported, a taste test among the cafeteria's diners sustained his judgment. Well, that's actually a fascinating story, right? You've got this, probably this uh, debate among coffee titans, the Italian espresso on the one hand, the Latin American dark roast on the other. Oh, man, I don't know where I would have fallen on that debate. Well, there's only one way to find out, GC. We'll have uh, have to do a taste test. Uh, All right. Final question. In 2010, the Washington Post reviewed government cafeterias in the D.C. area. Where did the Supreme Court rank? Memory serves uh, signs were not good. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, In fact, the Supreme Court's cafeteria ranked dead last. (laughs) The paper gave it a grade of F and said that the food should be unconstitutional. (laughs) You're right. I'm I'm not so hungry anymore. <laughs> well, you know, like I was mentioning a second ago, uh, maybe we can add food critics to our resumes and take a field trip next term to see if the food's improved in the past 10 years or so. That's a great idea. Justice Barrett, you're on notice. Agreed. Agreed. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. 
You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.